You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. We are in a series called Essential Matters. And uh, the whole idea behind this series is um, it's been uh, pretty wild, 2020, if you didn't notice. It's been kind of crazy. Been a lot of noise, a lot of people saying a million different things. And so this is just a chance for us to get back to basics, right? What is essential? Apparently in California, strip clubs are essential. Marijuana dispensaries are essential. But things like churches are not essential, right? So we thought it would be good to just get back to what is actually essential. And that's what this series has been all about. And so I wanna talk about um, something particularly essential. You know, Katie and I were at a a party last night and Katie was talking to this young lady and she said something that jumped out at us. And she said, you know, the world is confused. And she said, because Christians are confused. And the reason that Christians are confused it's because they don't know this. This is ground truth. How, how can, it, we've got so many Christians who are, who are just like, okay, I mean, pastors are telling me like that the media is bad, but then, I mean, it's the media. If I can't trust the news, who can I trust? And oh, everybody's saying this, and I just, da, 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 da. the reason the world is confused is because the Christians are confused. We should be so resolute in the word of God. We know the truth that we dictate culture. We don't adapt and respond and make ourselves relevant to culture. We make culture bow its knee to what God has said and what God has spoken. So today, this is going to be the most practical message I've ever preached, ever in my life. We're going to talk about this, the Bible, the holy word of God, okay? And I'm just going to, and, and listen, I'm, I'm not some, I didn't go to seminary, okay? I don't have a Bible degree. I, I went to school for a really long time, but I studied engineering. I don't know, like, ancient Hebrew or Greek. I'm just a guy like you who wants to know this as best as I can. So I just want to share some practical things that I have learned in my years of following God on how to read this book, how to implement it in your life. This is an amazing book, okay? I want to just set the stage about how unbelievable this book is. So did you know this is the most This is the single best-selling book of all time. By far, it's not even close. It's also the most stolen book of all time, which is awesome because people steal it and they get to the Ten Commandments. It's like, thou shalt not steal. It's like, oh, shoot. I also learned in my studies, I think this is kind of funny. It's not relevant at all. But in 1631, I think, there was a, a print of the Bible that went out, and there was a big mistake in it. And in the Ten Commandments, it actually says there was a big misprint, and they left out the word not. So it actually says, thou shalt commit adultery. And so it's called, it's called the sinner's Bible, and they're like this collector's item. There's only, I think, nine of them in the world. They'll go on sale every few years. So anyway, if you ever find a sinner's Bible, there should be a knot in there, okay? Thou shalt not commit adultery. But um, this book is made up of 66 smaller books, okay? It was written over the course of 1,500 years, okay, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, Um, It is uh, written on three continents. 
There's about 40 different authors that contributed to this book. And listen, they all had incredibly diverse backgrounds. There were kings, there were prophets, there were fishermen, musicians, a physician, military commanders, like all over the map are the people that contributed to this book. And it's faced incredible opposition over the years. I don't know if you guys have seen, um, it's rated R, so I haven't seen it, I'm a pastor, but maybe you guys have. Uh, It's called The Book of Eli, Denzel Washington movie, you know? And in, it's violent, but it's also awesome. Um, In this, I won't give away the the whole story, but but, uh, Denzel Washington plays kind of this sort of modern day prophet in this post-apocalyptic world, and he has the last copy of the Holy Bible, and it faces incredible opposition. And the villain in this movie wants to get his hands on the Bible because he knows that he can manipulate it, and he knows, even the villain knows the power that is in this book. So when the, the Bible was first originally translated into Latin, and it was actually held hostage by early church leaders. They wanted it to be in Latin because nobody spoke Latin, and so it was the clergy could keep it, they could manipulate it. They were the ones that knew the Latin scriptures, and then they would tell all, all of us common folk you know, what the scripture said. And then, uh, I think it was in like 1350-ish, a guy named John Wycliffe was the first to say, I'm gonna translate the Bible into English because it belongs in the hands of the common man, okay? And listen to this wretched quote from an early bishop of the church. He said about the Bible being translated out of Latin into English. He said, as a consequence, the gospel has become more vulgar and more open to laymen and even to women who know how to read than than it customarily is to moderately well-educated clergy of good intelligence. Thus, the pearl of the gospel has been scattered abroad and trodden under the feet of swine. Wow. And so the church was so furious with John Wycliffe for translating the Bible into English that 43 years after he died, they dug up his bones, burned his body, and scattered the ashes, okay? There is incredible opposition because the devil knows the power of the word of God. This book has faced incredible, incredible opposition. So I wanna just give you, again, as practical as I can possibly be, I wanna just kind of give you three things, how you can trust the Bible, how you can read the Bible, and how you use the Bible. How you trust it, how you read it, and how you use it. So as far as how to trust it, so I, I, as I mentioned, I went to school for a long time. I'm an engineer. Um, I, I, I did a PhD in structural engineering. So my whole academic career has been evidence and research and, and all of that stuff, right? And I don't have time. I actually have an entire page here that I just, I know I can't do. I would be disobedient to God if I went into it. But there are millions of, of reasons. The, the, the Bible is the most reliable ancient document that we have. We have more manuscripts of the Bible than we do of any other ancient work. It is incre- there is incredible reason to trust its, its um, historic significance and all that stuff. But I'm not, I don't have time for that. I'm not going to go into that. If you are really curious about that kind of stuff, come see me after. I'll give you some books you can read. It'll be great. But there's one thing above all the rest that has just, in my years of reading the, the Word of God, that has amazed me, that I have just, I've been unable to rationalize my way out of, and it is the unbelievable continuity of the entire book. You have this book, again, written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different people, three different continents, three different languages, and the whole thing from Genesis 1 verse 1 to the last amen in Revelation is about Jesus. Everything, 
Every single thing speaks to this future, in the Old Testament, speaking to this future Messiah, and then in the New Testament, about the Messiah. Everything in the book. And I'm going to give you some examples that I think are just amazing. So Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, there's Adam and Eve. You know, a lot of you probably know the story. They, they sin, and the Bible says that they sow fig leaves for themselves to, to cover their nakedness. And the Bible says that their covering was insufficient. So God provided an animal skin for them, okay? So hear that. The humans try to cover themselves. Their covering is insufficient, so God provides an animal skin. Now, I know it's a little sad. Peter's going to be upset. The only way you get an animal skin is through the death of an animal, okay? So even from Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible, there's already these snapshots that say in order for an appropriate covering for human beings to cover their shame, something is going to have to die. Even in Genesis 3, foreshadowing already about Jesus, the Messiah, that would go to the cross and die for our sins. In Genesis 18, Abraham is, uh, God says, I'm going to destroy this, this city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, Lord, if you, this is the very first recorded prayer in the Bible, where Abraham says, Lord, if you find 50 righteous people there, will you spare the city? God says, yeah, sure. He says, okay, well, well, what if you find 30 righteous people there? Will you spare the city? And God's like, yeah, sure. If you find 20, will you spare the city? Yes, I will. If you find 10 Will you spare the city? If you'll find 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says, yes, I'll do it. And even from the beginning, in Genesis 18, it's a foreshadowing that the righteousness of one can count for the righteousness of many. That is a foreshadowing to Jesus. It is filled, the whole book. There's a guy um, in New York, a pastor in New York named Tim Keller, and he points out a lot of these um, uh, beautifully. So if you look at Adam, the first man in in, in the Garden of Eden, there was a man in a garden who was given a test of obedience. And in the New Testament, we have a man, Jesus, who was in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, who was given a test of obedience. Adam failed, Jesus passed, right? So Adam is this foreshadowing to Jesus, right? Abel, we have an innocent man who was slain, whose blood, Bible says, his blood was crying out to the, from the ground for justice. You have an innocent man, Jesus, who was slain. His blood doesn't cry out for justice. It provides justice, right? We have Isaac. How crazy is this? Isaac, the son of Abraham, the Bible says that um, Abraham took him up to the mountain to sacrifice him on a word from God. And it says in the Bible that Isaac put wood on his back, walked up a mountain to be sacrificed by his father. New Testament. You have Jesus with wood on his back, walking up a mountain to be sacrificed by his father. Everything, the entire book is about Jesus. The story of Joseph. You have this man, Joseph, who is betrayed by his family, by his people, who is elevated to the right hand of the king, and when his family comes to him and asks for help, he uses his power to provide safety and deliverance for them. Does that sound like anybody you know? Another man was elevated to the right hand of the king, betrayed by his own people, who provided mercy and justice and forgiveness out of his position of power. The whole book, every character in the Old Testament speaks to Jesus. How insane is that? Written over 1,500 years, 66 different books, all these different authors, and all of them were writing about this one guy that would live 2,000 years ago. And to me, 
And there's a million, a million other reasons to trust the Bible, but for me, I just cannot get over that, the unbelievable connectedness of the Bible. The, Bible, the Old Testament, Bible is broken up into two Testaments, the Old Testament, New Testament, right? The Old Testament is filled with what are called prophecies. Prophecies are these, um, these uh, words about future happenings, what's gonna happen in the future, and they are filled with these prophecies about this coming Messiah, okay? And some of them were like, uh, we'll, we'll put, do you guys mind putting um, Micah 5, verse 2? Just This is one of hundreds, okay? It's going to be up on the screen, I think. So this was written in 700 B.C. So 700 years before Jesus, B.C., before Christ, right? That's our, all of our history is even broken up, like, before Jesus and after Jesus. That's how important it is, right? This is a prophecy about this coming Messiah, and it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. This was written 700, and we know, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, very good. So 700 years before Jesus was anything, this guy writes that out of Bethlehem, the Savior is going to come. So that would be like, I don't know, that'd be like what, you know, the, just call it the 1400s, that's 600 years That'd be like Christopher Columbus writing a book about where Marco was going to be born. That's insane. And this is one of hundreds of these prophetic words. And there was a guy, um, what was his name? I think Peter Stoner. It's kind of an unfortunate last name. He was a very, very godly man. Um, He was a professor of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College. And he looked at just eight of these biblical prophecies, out of the hundreds, just eight, and looked at the mathematical odds of all of those working together and and existing in one human, okay? So you say like, you know, in Micah it says that this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So it'd be easy to figure out what what are the odds that someone's gonna be born in Bethlehem versus somewhere else, right? Looking at just eight of them, the odds that one person would fulfill all of these, just these eight prophecies is one in a really big number. It's 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 followed by 17 zeros, okay? To illustrate it, he gives this, this illustration. A silver dollar is about this big, right? You know what silver dollar is? They still have those around anymore? I don't know. Silver dollar, about this big. If you were to cover the face of Texas with silver dollars and pile them up two feet high, and one of them, Someone wrote a J on the back in Sharpie. And you told someone, go wherever you want, walk all over the state of Texas on a pile of silver dollars two feet deep. The mathematical odds that you're going to grab the one that has the J on it is the mathematical odds that one man would fulfill all of the prophecies. Or not all of them, just eight of them. Okay? Unbelievable connectedness between, that's how you can trust the Bible. Okay? And for me, and again, I have a million other things about manuscripts and all kinds of, whatever. I don't have time for that. But for me, that is the thing that I have not been able to get over. This unbelievable book written over 1,500 years that has so, it's so perfectly connected, you can trust it. So how do you read it? Okay, and again, this is going to be the most practical message I've ever taught. I want to just give you guys some, I want you to leave here with real tools on how to read the Bible and how to use the Bible. First thing is, fundamentally, when you sit down to read your Bible, just pray. Very simple. God, will you speak to me? 
I know you've got something for me today. Don't approach it out of, you know, cynically, like, okay, God, let's see what you got here. Do it in an attitude of faith and say, you know what? Today I believe that you've got something for me, and I'm going to go find it. I pray that you would speak to me. Just start with a simple prayer. God, speak to me today as I read this book. Second thing is just know that there's different strokes for different folks. Everybody reads the Bible a little differently. They've got their own thing. Uh, There was an old pope um, that was called Gregory the Great. I don't know if he gave himself that name or somebody else did, but he said, and I love this, the Bible is like a river both wide and deep, shallow enough for a lamb to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim. It doesn't matter if you are a brand new Christian who can barely read, there's something for you. It doesn't matter if you are the most intellectual, scholarly, deep thinker, there's something for you. And wherever you are on that continuum in between, there's something for you. It's broad and deep, shallow enough for a lamb to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim. And listen, there, so Pastor Jurgen, I'll give him, I'll use him as an example. He uses the one-year Bible. The one-year Bible is a Bible that for 365 days breaks up little chunks of it where like every day you may read Genesis 1 verses 1 through 10, Psalm one and Matthew one or something like that. And then the next day it's Genesis two, Matthew two. And it just kind of marches you through the Bible, picking up little pieces along the way. Some people, very few people, I don't actually, I don't know if anybody does this super successfully. Some people like to just read it chronologically. I find that really hard because then you get to Leviticus and it's talking about boiling stuff and goat's milk. And you're like, this is weird. But for Pastor Jurgen, like that's his thing. He does the one-year Bible every single year. He's done it for years. And every year he does a new translation. So this year, I think he's doing the New King James. Next year, he'll do the NLT. But I love it because Pastor Leanne's like, that doesn't work for me. Can't do it. And it doesn't work for me, to be honest. Like I just, I don't work that way. It works for Pastor Jurgen. Maybe it would work for you. Maybe not. And that's okay. Everybody reads it a little bit different and that's fine. And I want to just kind of, again, super practically, give you, there's kind of, for me at least, a couple different ways to approach a chunk of the Bible. You can read it long or you can read it short, okay? And sometimes it's great to just kind of take a step back. You're not trying to dig in and analyze every single word and why did it say this instead of that. You're just kind of reading it. Just take, you know, a chapter of Matthew or a chapter of Luke. And if, listen, if you don't know where to start, don't start the beginning of the, of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four. They're called the Gospels. Gospel is a word that means good news. The, and all of the Bible is equally important and, and relevant, but the four Gospels are the most accessible. If, for, if you're new to faith, it's the easiest thing for you to read to get a very accurate snapshot of who Jesus is, what he taught, what he said. Different strokes for different folks. So when you, sometimes it's good, you just, you just read a big chunk and you're not trying to analyze everything and it just gives you a sense of just the overarching message. So maybe you'll read Matthew 1 through 3 and you're not stopping and trying to dig in there, you're just kind of reading it and that's great then sometimes it's good to like really, really dig in, take one little passage. And I'm going to give you, again, an incredibly practical example from my own life. This is just a few months ago of what this actually looked like, okay? So I was reading in uh, Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to march through kind of how this worked in my own life to show you. So the guys are going to put um, Luke 5, 1 through 6 up here. So I was reading this in the morning, okay, and it says, this is the story of when uh, Jesus tells Peter to cast out into the deep uh, or push out into the deep and cast out his net for a catch, right? So it was, is it up there? So it was, great. 
Um, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Genazareth, which is the Sea of Galilee. I had to look that up. I didn't know that. Okay. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered him, master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. Okay, so I read that this one morning, and that's not like a huge chunk. That's just one little passage, okay? And what, I, what, you, what you do when you read a passage like this is take the time to really think about it, okay? And again, I want to just walk you through my own, and maybe this is just my crazy brain. Maybe yours doesn't work this way. But for me, I'm reading this, and it says, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And I just thought to myself, man, I wonder, launch out into the deep. Like, what did that look like? How big, and I wondered, how big is the Sea of Galilee? So I Googled, how big is the Sea of Galilee? 60 square miles. Wow, that's really big. It's a lot bigger than I thought. So what was it like to go from the shallow to the deep? When you just kind of read the, the narrative super quick, it just sounds like Peter's like, Jesus is like, launch out into the deep. And Peter's like, okay, here we are. It wasn't like that. It was a huge lake. So for Peter to get from the shallow to the deep, he had to row the boat. And so, like, I'm just kind of reading this, going back a little bit, reading again, and kind of wondering, jumping to Google, how big is the Sea of Galilee? Oh, wow. I'm just kind of thinking, meditating on it, wondering why are things this way instead of that. And I started thinking about Peter rowing. And I was like, I wonder what he was thinking while he was rowing. He's super tired. tired. He toiled all night, sitting there rowing. This random rabbi says, hey, push out into the deep. And he's like, oh, dude, you're a carpenter. This is what I do. I'm a fisher man. But I just heard you teach, and it was pretty awesome. I guess I'll do it. And then I was just thinking about, like, what would Peter be thinking as he's rowing the boat? And, and all of the doubts and all of the, like, man, when I get there, is there going to be anything for me? When I, as I, as I, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I've been up all night. And in that moment, God spoke to me, and I realized, he just whispered to my heart that that's where I am right now. I'm God has spoken to me and said, and, and specifically for me, this was around my business. I, I launched out in faith on a word from God in October of last year, launched a business. Turns out the whole world like exploded in March. And it's really, really hard time to start a business if you didn't know that. And so I've faced a lot of challenges and I've been wondering like, God, why would you do this? Why would you call me? So I, I found myself in this story. And I found myself where like Peter, just rowing and wondering like, God, you've said put out your net for a catch. I believe in faith that there's a catch out there, but I'm just sitting here rowing. And listen to me, it gave me incredible comfort. It gave me great peace. It gave me the faith, the courage to keep rowing, to not give up. And that's why this book is so important. This is the word of God. You will find incredible courage in it. You just have to take some time, read it, think, let God speak to you through it. And I want to, um, uh, touch on one thing, and my niece Molly is not here, so I can talk about her behind her back. If you guys don't know, my, my beautiful niece, she's 20 years old, um, moved in with, uh, with Katie and I, moved from Texas, and she's kind of new to faith, new to reading the Bible, and we had this super funny interaction the other day where she read, um, she was like, you know, she made the big mistake. She was like, I'm going to read the Bible. So she started in Genesis and was like, I'm just going to plow through it. And I was like, oh, not a good idea. But anyway, so she gets to Genesis 3.16, I think, and it says, and she texts me a picture of it. And she says, nope, I'm out. 
And it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. She's like, no way, not me, uh-uh, I'm done. And I wanna just, when you come across something in the Bible that irks you, that makes you say, mm, I don't know about that, just consider, Molly's 20. This book has been around for like 3,000 years, okay? So maybe when you come across something in the Bible that irks you, instead of saying, uh, this thing's outdated, ancient, why don't you say, what is it in me that makes me feel that way? Let it read you instead of you reading it. Understand that you read the Bible through your own cultural filter. And I'll give you one more example. You know, um, you hear it all the time, like, oh, the Bible condones slavery. We can't, this outdated book, it's backside of history, you know, condones slavery. And, and it's, it's like, the, you know, Paul says, slaves obey your masters. But you have to understand, here in the United States of America, when we hear the word slavery, we instantly think, and we can't help it, this is our cultural filter, we think of new world, race-based African slavery. That's what we think of. And so immediately we're just like, this is so backwards, this is so regressive, I can't even believe this. Understand, this was written in first century Palestine. Race-based slavery wasn't even a thing. Right? So you just need to understand, and I don't have time to, to go into that passage and all that stuff, but just understand that when you read it, inevitably, you will see it through your own cultural filters. So instead of just throwing things out that, that are hard for you to digest, ask yourself, why does this bother me? Maybe I'm not understanding it quite right. Ask questions, do research, right? That's how you read it. And lastly, how do you use it? You can't just read the Bible, you gotta use the Bible. So in, it's gonna be on the screen. I'm making the media team work, baby. Come on, you guys gotta keep up, let's do it. Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. I want you to look at these words. This is Paul talking about this armor of God, this kind of proverbial symbolic armor. He says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may, you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Therefore, verse 14, um, stand having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication. And so you have these, these armor pieces, right? If you notice, all of the pieces of armor are defensive, they're protective. Helmet protects your head, breast, breastplate, shield, sandals would have armor over them to cover your feet, right? The only offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit. That's the offensive weapon. It says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Your only, and then listen what Paul says. Uh, put verse um, uh, 17 back up if you can. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And there's a semicolon there, not a period, not the end of the sentence. And in verse 18 it says, praying always, what that says is, you pray this. You take up the sword of the Spirit and you pray it. And so I wanna just walk you through how to do that. I'm gonna give you an example, okay? Again, I, I, for me, there's been some challenges in business over the past few months. And I called up a great friend that goes uh, to this church, Greg Holland, great man of God, older than me, wiser than me. And I just said, Greg, I'm having, I'm having a tough time with this. And he said, read Romans 4, that's for you, Romans 4. And so I said, yes, sir. 
I read Romans 4. Romans 4 is Paul talking about Abraham, okay? And if you don't know the story, Abraham was um, called the father of our faith. God spoke to him and said, you will be a father of many nations, a multitude, that your descendants will be more numerous, and he goes on and on. Problem was he was super old. Okay, and hadn't had a child forever. And was like, well, I don't know how, like we're past childbearing years, buddy. You missed the boat, right? And so um, Paul in Romans 4, it's gonna be on the screen, 4, 18 through 21. I want you to, to read this. And I'm just, again, I'm walking you through exactly how this played itself out in my own life. So I sat down and I read this and it says, who, talking about Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he became the father of many nations. That was the promise, right? So he hoped in this promise that God had spoken to him according to what was spoken, this is quoting God, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. So this is his circumstance. He was old, body already dead, past childbearing years, and the, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, verse 21, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So you have Abraham hoping in a promise in spite of his circumstance. So you take yourself, your promise, your circumstance, you put it in there and you pray it. So I'm gonna show you exactly what I prayed. I prayed, God, I hope, contrary to hope, I believe that you will bless my business. That's the promise, that you will bless my business according to the promise that you gave me, according to the word that you gave me. I will not be weak in faith. I will not consider my present circumstances, a global pandemic, what CNN, CBS, CNSB, whatever acronym says about you know, money in the economy. I will not bow my knee to that. I don't care what the circumstances look like. I will not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. I will be strengthened in faith. I will give glory to God. And I am fully convinced that what he has promised me, he is able to deliver. So that was my prayer. I prayed the word of God. It's my sword, my offensive weapon. Maybe for you, it's Psalm 23. Psalm 23 says, says, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Maybe you pray that, that's your weapon. When life is crazy around you and, and whatever, you're, you're having family issues, issues in your marriage, issues at work, whatever it is, you pray that weapon. You say, God, you are my shepherd. I will lack for nothing. I will not be in want. You will make me lie down in green pastures. God, you provide my rest. You are my resting place. You are my refuge. And you pray your way through these promises. That's how you use the word of God. So I want you to do me a favor, stand to your feet really, really quick as we close. So if you are um, in here and you're not a Christian and uh, want to become a Christian, it's super simple. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We've got an incredible team over here with Desiree giveaway. I want you to go visit her after service. No, nothing weird, nothing crazy is gonna happen to you. She's just gonna pray with you. She's got a Bible she wants to give you, a little book called Following Jesus. Um, so after service here, we close here in, in two minutes. Go see her if that's you, and you, you know that this is your moment. This is your day to become a Christian, to, to trust in God for the first time. Maybe, maybe you walked with them you know, years ago, grew up in church, whatever, and have fallen away. Go see Desiree. She's got some of the best people in our church that are going to pray with you. But I want to take a moment and pray for all of you. I want to pray for the Christians in the room. And so I want you to be bold. If you want and desire a greater hunger for God's Word, and, you, and I want... 
before I ask the question, let me just tell you too, again, I didn't go to seminary, okay? I didn't, I don't have some theology degree from Yale, okay? I'm just a guy who is trying to figure out how to read this book. And I want you to know that it hasn't always, I haven't always had this incredible, insatiable hunger. I've had moments, and, and this was when we were at this church, this would have been, I don't know, maybe five years ago or so, and we were serving and leading even. And I was really struggling with reading the Bible. And I would tell Katie, and I think this is going to resonate with some of you, I would tell her, I would look at this book of a thousand pages, and it felt to me, this is exactly the words I used to her, it feels like I'm in a pitch black, huge warehouse, and there's one red button somewhere, and I got to find it. And I'm just, you're just kind of like, I don't know, maybe I'll try Ecclesiastes. I don't, maybe I'll go to Ephesians. I don't know. And it just felt like wandering about. And so I've been in a place where just like this was deeply overwhelming to me. But I want you to know that God will illuminate his word to you if you just ask him. And I just asked. It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like all of a sudden I woke up the next day and was like, I'm going to read Colossians backwards and then Ephesians 4. It was a journey. But I prayed, God, would your word come alive to me? And I want to, I want to impart that to you. So if you're in here and that's you, you want a, a deeper desire to read the word of God. You want to see, um, you want to let it read you. You want these stories of, of scripture to, to, to come at you, to infiltrate your life, to, to um, convict you, to teach you, to make you better. I want you to just lift your hands. I'm going to pray for you if that's you. God, I thank you for these hands raised, God, that are hungry for your presence, that are hungry for more of you. God, we declare right now that we are so thankful God, that you have spoken. In the Greek, the word, uh, the word word is the word logos, which is where we get the word logic. This is the reasoning of the universe. This is ground truth that we can put our hope in, that we can trust. God, we thank you for your word, but we thank you that you didn't just write a bunch of words thousands of years ago, that you are still speaking, God, that these words, the logos of God, will become the rhema of God. Rhema is the other word in the Bible used for word, and it means the utterance. It means in your present circumstance, in your present situation, the logos of God will speak to your heart, give you a rhema, a word that's in season, that's perfectly tailored for you. Even though it was written by whatever, some prophet 800 years ago, it will be perfectly tailored for you because this is a living, breathing word of God. So God, I thank you for this church, God, that we are hungry for your word. I declare this week even, there is going to be an insatiable hunger among us to know you better, to read our Bibles, and you're going to speak to us through this book, God. We open our hearts, God. We surrender to you, God. We lay down our preferences. We lay down our cultural moment, and we say that we will trust you, that we will let your word read us. We surrender ourselves to your holy word in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.